0: to the review session for Anti-Oedipus, chapter two, section, sin, section sits the uh, three syntheses. Um, as you all know, we read that chapter and we're actually able to complete it yesterday. We got a little bit scrounged for time at the end and there's a little bit of rushing, but I think overall we were able to get into a lot of the main um, ideas of that section. And so with that, um, I'm gonna turn it over to an open floor. Well, what, um, I guess, the best place to be on? Does anyone have any uh, questions about that section that they want to discuss?
1: got one person type it.
0: Tiern writes um, How did the three syntheses work at once? And so, um, I guess, like uh, we were just talking about this, but the way I read it is uh, Deleuze gives this explanation to Foucault and. Um, in a different discussion about how praxis and theory uh, used to be thought of in terms of theory produces praxis or praxis produces theory. The question of a chicken or the egg. And Deleuze says in their their day and time, uh, we no longer think of it that way. We see it as the circuitry and the system of relays whereby there's theory over here and praxis over here, and all these different outlets by, by which they're responding to one another. And so it's kind of how I see the three syntheses is it's not really a clear set of phases, but it's like a simultaneity and and secession, as Borges would write, whereby uh, things are getting connected, things are getting inscribed, and things are getting consummated, consumed. And, you know, there's all these different progressions happening, but they're happening um, simultaneously with one another, and there's a secession occurring
1: thereby, yeah, I mean, this is where, um, so this is where, you know, one of the big inspirations for this book was cybernetics, right? Cause, uh, if you want to get non-representational, uh, one of the big things that allowed them to get fully non-representational was this idea, was the idea of cybernetics where you don't consider a thing for what it is, but you consider its possibilities. And then you go into complex systems where you also consider its potentials. So you're not falling into the traps of representation. And, you know, so, and so what, what What I, one way to think about this, it's not so much that they're all happening at once. It's more that uh, if, if so we were talking about this a bit earlier, it's that it's a very Kantian system. The term synthesis actually derives from Kant himself. And uh, so the synthesis for Kant is, is uh, so Kant understands the synthesis of what information transfers from intuition to a concept in your head, almost. And that's a very vulgarized simplification, but um, it's it's something similar happening here, where it's uh, it's it's these three syntheses that what they're going to ask in the first chapter is what are the possible conditions for an unconscious, you know, and uh, so. What we have been reading in chapter one is the correct use of the possible conditions as opposed to the incorrect use via psychoanalysis. And this is their auto critique. But when they ask, what are the correct uses? They're going to ask, what is it? What are the, what, how are these use? How is the unconscious possible? What, what are the, like, what are the essential things that make it possible? And, uh, so they're going to say, all right, so it's these three syntheses. So if these three syntheses are the conditions that constitute the unconscious, we need to understand how they work. Right. Again, we're no longer in representation. We're not asking what they, what, what they mean, but what they are, what they are, but how they work. And uh, they, one of the ways to think about the way they work is they always work in interactions, right? A desiring machine interacts with another machine and it's going to work everywhere. So if everything's the production of production, right, it's the production of, Uh, it's the production of anti-production. It's the production of consumption while everything's the production of production because it's, you know, their ontology is becoming. So they say there's no strict teleology. Everything's becoming production of itself. And there's always engendering itself from the excess of desire. And uh, by doing that, what they're trying to talk about is that I think a better word than uh, simultaneously is it works in connections. So everything relates back to one another in a way. And uh, at least that's the way I understood it. So if everything's relating back to one another, if you can't understand it as linear, I think the better word would be multilinear.
0: Well said, well said. Um does anyone else have any uh uh questions? Okay, how about we jump in the follow-up questions that were um, uh, submitted yesterday. Okay, so we've got a question about the Nietzschean references and um, what's being done with Nietzsche's work in chapter 2, section 6. We've got a question about discussing uh, materialism as Deleuze and Guattari are discussing it against the conception of idealism uh, that coagulates around Oedipus and psychoanalysis. And then we've got a third question about the strengths of schizoanalysis, apart from the negation of psychoanalysis. Uh, Going on to say, abolishing the quote, what does it mean? And advancing to the quote, how does it work, unquote seem similar to technology, such as algorithms. And if there is any correlation, let's discuss how it's important to their work. Uh, So where would you guys like to start?
1: I guess we can start at the very beginning, where they talk about Nietzsche, right? Because it opens up with a a sort of parallel to Nietzsche's Antichrist. And I I don't know if you guys have read the preface by by like Xim, the translator, but, you know, I, I think with these uh, continental philosophy books, everyone has their own interpretation of what the book is a rewriting of, right? Some people think Difference in Repetition is a rewriting of uh, Kant's uh, third critique. Some people think it's a rewriting of uh, Sartre's being in nothingness, right? So, like, I mean, one of the references that was given to this this uh, this book was that some people thought it was a rewriting of Nietzsche's Antichrist. But um, so with, with regards to the Antichrist, I mean, I, I, I see Oedipus in the, at least the way they're writing it as 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 theological.
0: Could you explain what you mean by ontotheo- theological? Are you talking about like a divine ontology?
1: Well, I'm, I'm talking about so Heidegger's critique of uh Onto theology. So, I mean, this is, comes from Heidegger, but the critique is something like it's it's that one theory that explains everything, and oh, the one wow, that that you about a narrative. narrative. What? You're talking about, about a narrative? Yeah, to a certain degree, it's almost like you could call it that. Yeah, I, I think that's helpful to call it that, right? But it's like that it's the one the one answer to everything, and so um, you know. The, the way Oedipus works is that they've they've understood the, the the way you know the incorrect use of the synthesis as opposed to the correct use. When you look at the incorrect use, it's uh, it's the incorrect uses are almost monolithic, and uh, by monolithic I mean they're representational, and because they're representational, they've you know they 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 come to the conclusion, oh, it's Oedipus, so uh, Oedipus can be used to explain everything. But I think we're I think we we'll come back coming back to that first uh, quote. I, I think you had you 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 were saying something about uh, Nietzsche's short es- short essay about the uh, about the Mad Men or something.
0: Yeah, um and so musky, will i will make my uh, brief comment and then we'll bring you in here because this is your question, and we do um, you know we'd like to hear more about uh, what you're thinking too. but um the way I read the reference there in this paragraph where they're talking about where they write, for instance, For Nietzsche is not the kind to ruminate over the death of a father and spend all his paleolithic period internalizing him. On the contrary, Nietzsche is exceedingly tired of all these stories revolving around the death of a father, the death of God, and wants to put an end to the interminable discourses of this nature, discourses already in vogue in his Hegelian epoch. Alas, he was wrong these discourses have continued, but Nietzsche wanted us to finally pass on to serious things.
1: So I, I think the first part about that quote is definitely a hearkening off the affirmative nature, the nature of Nietzsche's thought, right? Uh, if, if you guys read uh, Deleuze's little book on Nietzsche, it's all about, it's really this really affirmative reading of Nietzsche, right? And uh, um, so, you know, you know, I mean, Hegel is the complete opposite of Nietzsche in this case then, right? Because Hegel was the great thinker of the negative, the negation, and negation of negation, and all those paradoxes that come from opposing forces. Well, what Nietzsche is going to do is—Nietzsche is just going to—is going to affirm that, right? So uh, he's going to ignore— ignore it and just produce. I, I think Todd May has a good example of this when he talks about uh, what the loose means by the active force. You, you look at like the French impressionist painters and, uh, the way they worked was that essentially when the old classicist painters came along, they, they, they opposed, uh, the friend, the new style. The, and this, style was like, it was avant-garde. So they were like, no, this is, we, we don't want this. So what they did was they tried to fight against the, these new avant-garde painters by creating, you know, like protest galleries where they'd say, oh, this is the art of the refused and stuff. But what happened was, you know, the impressionist painters just ignored them. They just kept producing their work. And by producing their work, they just automatically destroyed the old classicist painters because, you know, we just had a new movement called impressionism built out of that sort of uh, affirmative nature, as opposed to a negation that was subsumed by an affirmation.
0: Yeah. And I also see it like the, the story I'm thinking of, and I think this will kind of illustrate what's, um, Varun's talking about is, um, in the gay science or the joyful wisdom, however you like, uh, about paragraph 125 in the New York edition, there's a story about a madman going to the market with a lantern, right? So it's, it's this old, like, um, image of the, the hermit or like, a Diogenes going about the streets, looking for an honest man, right? Uh, in the same way, this madman lights a lantern during morning, goes to the marketplace and cries, I seek God, I seek God. And uh, those around him uh, don't believe in God. So he gets laughed at. Uh, the madman's uh, Josh, right? And so he says, uh, getting more infuriated, uh, that. He's being laughed at. He cries, "Whither is God?" I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. And so the madman sets up this idea that we've, we've killed God and God is dead, right? So this echoes the Hegelian uh, notion that, uh, because Hegel is the first one, I believe, to say God is dead, and remains dead. And to this Nietzsche's uh, madman replies, "How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers?" Was that, I'm sorry, what was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? And this is kind of what Veruna is saying, right, is like, instead of defining ourselves through the death of God with another negation and living under that, what Nietzsche is saying is that actually, this opens up a whole world of possibilities that has always been there. And so right, the, the story closes with, um, the, the, this is probably the most famous line, what after all are these churches now, if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? So, right, like, with Nietzsche, you've got this space for possibility, whereby the death of God doesn't really, in some ways, it's not really a big deal. It just opens up a whole realm of possibilities, which is what Varun's talking about in terms of affirmation.
1: Yeah, and I mean, sorry, you want to say something?
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say that uh, that all makes sense. But I was I was thinking more about like um, the genealogy of morals. So I was thinking about like um, just the way that that book is about sort of taking down morality right, or the idea of good and evil and sort of um, asking people to propose or create an alternative to it and and how that project is sort of echoed by um, this book. But instead of it being like morality or religion or good and evil, it's Oedipus and psychoanalysis.
1: Um, so I, I think you bring up a good point With gene, uh, genealogy, because the way they, with, the way that, I mean, all of Deleuze, like even difference and repetition, he he makes he a point about a critique has to be uh, a critique has to be understood with genealogy before it can be a real critique, and so they do that with Oedipus too. They ask, okay, because you know one of the things they, they make pretty explicit is they they say they don't they don't say that, and I feel like we need to keep reiterating this because I think it's a it's like sort of it might be a popular misconception but they don't deny Oedipus they don't just say it's like oh psychoanalysis just made up Oedipus one night no people actually really did want to fuck their mothers right it was sort of the flows of desire were conditioned in that way and whatever whatever would be double binds and stuff so they ask what are the what are the historical conditions that allowed such a thing to happen where people would want to fuck their mothers and uh so one of the things they identify is the incest taboo, the the pr- the prohibition of incest, and they they ask, and then they they look at okay so how does this create a representation where desire gets conditioned in a certain manner, and uh, you know later on they're going to talk about undoing representations and stuff, but by doing so that you know they're trying to do an auto critique where where, where in finding all these sort of paralogisms and incorrect logics within psychoanalysis, they get the logic of psychoanalysis to critique itself.
2: Yeah, and so then that's I, I that reminds me of like genealogy again too, right? Where the idea is that um, they he sort of takes what you know Christian morality uh, you know says about itself and sort of reveals the like. Actually, this is a will to power and right and he starts talking about result and sort of constructs like, you know, a critique of uh, the religion
0: Yeah, and and just like you said right like anti-Oedipus isn't the death of Oedipus. You're 100% correct It's a de-Oedipalizing of psychoanalysis. Just like Nietzsche tries to expose and remove moral prejudices from morality and that way, it opens up space for uh, what, what Varun is calling affirmation.
2: Definitely, and, and I, I guess um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say was that I really liked the section uh, Deleuze and Guatari get into towards the end, where they start talking, where they start like explicitly, to my mind at least, referencing the genealogy, where they're talking about, isn't this just the psychology of a priest?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think specifically about that. I think what they're talking about is, uh, I mean, eh, I'm going to use the big R word again, but it's representation, right? That there's this one ideal, this one, because uh, whenever you ask what something is, rather than you consider how it works or what are the potentials, you create this ideal. And it's it's the one thing where everything has to conform to that once you have a representation and you know they, they that's that's their understanding of god oedipus in my sense
0: and and i would add to that that it's also like the the quote Muskie guest just gave there's no um because there's no psychology except that of the priest i i think that speaks to the way this kind of works too in the sense that uh there's no room for a psychoanalysis outside of that of the priest so like it's kind of onto theological idea in a sense, but it's the idea that, right, we want to fit, th- we, we're tempted to believe that there is the psychoanalysis out there that binds um, us and that we're, we're supposed to take our subjectivity from and submit to, right, this sort of universal idea that's it's this sort of unquestionable science. And in that sense, right, what we discover, or at least what, what Nietzsche and Deleuze and Guattari are pointing to is No, it doesn't exist separate from us, right? Psychoanalysis doesn't really stand above us all like it's some sort of objective thing. Um, It comes from people. And in this sense, it comes from, right? They compare him to a priest, I think, to point out that um, psychoanalysis has a, this might be a little bit more of a Foucaultian idea, but psychoanalysis comes with a power structure and it comes with a, I would call it a hierophant, but a priest, right? Somebody who has been ordained to apply all this to people. Yeah, and it definitely comes with a will to power too. But and that will to power can also be seen as um, being manifested in the structurality of it all because they do identify Oedipus as a structure. And with the structure comes, uh, to use Plato's term, a guardian, right? Or a philosopher king, but it comes with these sentinels People who um, do the work, whether it's the uh, the hard work of protection or the ritualistic work, um, I'm. I, I got
2: my copy of uh, Genealogy of Morals out from my pile of books, and I wanted to um, read like the first sentence of the first essay because it was um, one of the. Um, uh, first, uh, like one of the things I thought about reading this section where uh, Nietzsche says, uh, these English psychologists to whom we owe the only attempts that have thus far been made to write a genealogy of morals are by n- are no mean posers of riddles, but the riddles they pose are themselves, and being incarnate have one advantage over their books. They are interesting. So, like, that's just basically, I, I think that's pointing out much the same stuff that uh, Jack's just said, right, where it's like these people act as if these things are objective or outside their you know their wills or you know their power considerations their themselves but they're not really right they're they sort of um, are at the embodiment of the work that they're doing i think is the a part of the way that nietzsche is uh, characterizing them
0: yeah they're they're connected
2: yeah And that's why they're kind of like priests, right? They're going around and they're trying to convert people.
0: Yeah. Good reading, man. There's definitely a proselytizing that goes on. uh, To use a more down-to-earth word, uh, there's a preaching. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So then I guess um, what uh, Deleuze and Guattari are doing is sort of similar to what Nietzsche is doing and, and asking for that affirmation, right? Instead of looking for these structures that are, you know, transcendental and, um, you know, um, sort of, I guess, immune or like intangible to the sort of power concerns that humans have being like living beings involved in the struggle for life. Um, they want instead to make people aware of the way that those things are connected and sort of affirm those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just change the word transcendental.
2: Transcendent. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel, <laughs> sure, like what the the difference between the two is, but but yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing there.
1: Uh, uh, transcendental is uh, you know that's the kind system where they're good which is actually what they're doing they're doing a transcendental uh system where they're asking okay so what are the possible conditions for us to have uh, uh the unconscious what are the possible conditions for us to have oedipus and that's all their transcendental system and by transcend by transcendent i think what's transcendent here is the representation which you were talking about right that um that idea of God is the transcendent representation. And uh, I think you're right there when you talk about this idea of affirming those things. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I would agree with most of that, yeah.
0: And If it helps, too. The, the full quote that uh, Muskie was reading is, um, to give you the sentence leading into it, but what water will cleanse these concepts of their background? So you can already see this is like Nietzsche's madman, right? What, what water is this going to wipe the blood off of our hands? Uh, where did I leave it? But what water will cleanse these concepts of their background, their previous existences, society? scientific knowledge is non-belief is truly the last refuge of belief? And as Nietzsche put it, there never was but one psychology, that of the priest. Kind of like we're saying, too. Even the even taking um, the science of it all, this problem still exists in psychoanalysis as a science.
2: Oh, I, I remembered what I, what, I, what I wanted to say. So the the interesting thing about the way that DNG used—this is sort of a pivot. It's not super related to what Jax was saying. It's more related to what Varun was saying. Like The way they use transcendental and the way they use material— sort of dovetails for me right because if you're really just asking the question what are the conditions that make the unconscious work aren't you asking a material question and not really like a question about you know ideas or transcendental things
1: uh yeah i mean i think it might be a phrasing error with the word you're using but uh I, you're right it's it's a it's a you know maybe it's aristotelian almost when they're asking about the production of production where it's always becoming a. I wouldn't go too far with that because I don't even know if that's right what I'm saying, but uh, y- yeah, you are right because it's about you know they they are there's a whole interesting debate about you know was Deleuze a materialist was he a transcendental empiricist and you could go into the whole world which is such a it's a crazy place because everyone has their own ideas there but really you know the unconscious is material right it's a it's this the thing where you where uh, uh, you have like Uh, a mouth machine connected to a breast machine and it's 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 the set it's it's not exactly the thing that's happening but it's uh it's just the process of them happening i think the key word here is process that constitutes the unconscious that constitutes the possibility of an unconscious Mm. and this seems very um
2: derived from like the idea of the will in nietzsche um, for me, cause that's also kind of a material force. It's like, it's, uh, it's about what can be done, right? Like, um, things getting changed. It's about
1: power. Um, yeah, so I, uh, uh, so about the will being a, a, a material force. I think you're exactly right there because desire is everything is material over here as, as well as with the unconscious desire. So you're, you're spot on there.
2: Maybe this is a good time to pivot to the other question—the one Brooks asked about materialism.
1: So, I'd would like to talk more about this dive into materialism, and their making against the idealism brought on the myth that that gives us Oedipus and others. So, um, I mean, so so I was a bit confused when I saw this because by idealism, because he was talking about materialism. I thought he was talking about idealism as in transcendental idealism for a second, like the Kantian system. But I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about idealism in the sense that, um, Oedipus is the idealistic thing that it's, uh, that it's the one representation where everything must be subsumed and fall and fall under. I think that's what he meant by it's idealism. But, uh, so, so, so what, what they mean by this is that, Again, it comes back to representation, in my opinion. With the, so that what happens with even me and Jack, were talking about this a little bit earlier when we before we began, we were having a bit of an argument. But um, so the way the, the the way the way they ask, what they ask in the beginning of chapter two is, what are the possible conditions for Oedipus to come in? So if they've identified at the very beginning what they deem as the correct uh, synthesis, right, the correct way that the unconscious works. It works by connective synthesis, disjunctive synthesis, and consuming synthesis. Um, psychoanalysis fails to realize that. And uh, if you guys remember the critique of pure reason, what Kant was trying to do was uh, he was trying to understand uh, if, you, if you make that... What, what, by by uh, taking pure reason, right? He was going to ask, what are the conditions that allowed the possibility of pure reason? And any argument that doesn't epistemologically fall under those conditions... Can be deemed pure metaphysics and pure, basically pure, like pure fluff. And it's a similar thing happening here with the way they understand Oedipus as an idealistic thing. It's that they use the correct, the incorrect synthesis. And by using the incorrect synthesis, right, they fail to, under, the psychoanalyst fails to understand this idea of re- representation, that he himself is creating this representation of Oedipus. And hence, Oedipus becomes this, this metaphysical thing. You know, I think, I think one easy way to visualize this is that triangle and the pre-Oedipal, para-Oedipal, and exo-Oedipal stage, where it's always in the background of everything. And um, because of that, because it, it, and, and the only reason they can do that is because they've used the synthesis incorrectly. But as long as you've used the synthesis incorrectly, you've gone into metaphysics, so it's idealistic by its very nature.
2: I like what you said about Kant, because I don't actually, I don't think I've ever read Critique of Pure Reason, um, but it makes sense to me because of thinking about these sort of conditions that they outline for what makes the unconscious possible, and it's things like desiring and recording and stuff like that, and, and those seem all pretty you know, logical and material, and so I guess that's the parallel you're making to Kant, right, where he sort of is like being really, really strict about um, what conditions can make rationality possible.
1: Yeah. And he's making that pretty strict divide of, you know, what, what do we consider metaphysics after that? And, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 it's because of those incorrect uses for them that we get stuck in these positions where we want to, for the psychoanalyst, it's that you want to have intercourse with your with your mother.
2: And kill your father and take his place and st- stab your eyes out and answer a sphinx's riddle or something.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since i read Sophocles. <laughs> so
0: my take is um, not so content because my, my critique of pure reason is pretty, uh, it's still being kindled, I suppose, so it's not as lit as Varun's. Um, but that said, um, because be, because Brutz was interested in the myth side of it, I just wanted to say a little bit about the the uh, the finality of it, uh, of this section, which talks about being Oedipus and then being Hamlet, right? So this movement between stories, particularly those in literature, um, we're, to give you the quote, um, this is a quote they're quoting. So it's quote, uh, whether this be or, whether this be so or not, what seems infinitely more important is why revert to myth? Unquote. If myth is given up, a little joy, a little discovery is restored to psychoanalysis. For it has become very dismal, very sad, quite interminable with everything decided in advance. Will it be retorted that the schizo is not joyous either? But doesn't this sadness come from the fact that he can no longer bear the forces of Oedipalization and Hamletization, that hem him on all sides, order to flee to the body without organs and hide out there, closing himself up in it? The the one thing I wanted to say, that, um, and, and, and this does kind of relate to Nietzsche, too, in terms of myth... In some ways, what I see going on here is uh, myth is in the making, not in the made. That is to say, uh, when myth and belief get to a point that they've become sort of uh, sort of static and outside of everything, then you've got a trouble, right? Myth, um, I think, more so is in the making and the living, as opposed to the... Um, the way you're always trying to live up to something that's beyond you, right? Because to me, that is, the, uh, in some ways, the essence of a dismality, is living up to something you can't live up to.
2: And that, I think that connects really nicely to the material conditions, sort of, that make the unconscious possible, right? Um, if myth is in the living and the unconscious is more about, you know, what does it do instead of what does it mean, those seem, like, really compatible to me.
1: Right. One thing I just wanted to talk about was that um, I, I really appreciated that last paragraph because what it did was, um, I don't know if you, if, you, if you guys remember that first, the very the second chapter, the very second section of this book, when they first in, introduced uh, the body without organs, it's just that the language they use in that chapter is so abstract. It's, it's almost impossible to make any sense of what they're saying, but it's almost like they've given the they've given a really nice recapitulation of that right here. And uh, what they're saying is that, you know, when they say that desiring machines attempt to break into the body without organs, but then they're repulsed and that constitutes the paranoiac machine. I mean, isn't that exactly what's happening here, right? The schizo tries to break into the body without organs, but is repulsed and he's repulsed. So he starts closing up, right? The condition the, the the thing about the paranoiac machine is that it denies connection. So he starts closing up. Um, you know, eyes wide shut, uh, mouth zipped up—like they have that whole that whole that whole poetry at the very beginning of chapter two, right? So he begins to close up, and that's exactly what sort of cy- psychoanalysis is, in a way, right? It, it's it's restricting connections in this paranoiac sense, and creating rather than exclusivity of the schizophrenic, it's inclusivity. Well, it's not so much that it's because of the representation. Oedipus is itself created and you've been closed up. Right. And I think they, they're going to about this a lot more when they soon go into chapter three and marks and stuff, but they're just foreshadowing it pretty nicely here.
0: Yeah. And if I could just really briefly respond, uh, make, make a comment about that. I think you're right. And I, I think, um, what's interesting to me is the way the schizo retreats and closes themselves up in the body without organ is, um, I think one of the major things they're getting at with psychoanalysis, um, is that, uh, it seems to, it seems to me psychoanalysis, one of the major flaws for Deleuze and Watery is going to be that, um, even though desiring machines may try to break into the body without organs, I think the trouble with schizoanalysis is, um, that it tries to take you away from the body without organs. It tries to separate the two and so like um uh, what, what i think is interesting about the schizo is that it sees this and tries to retreat onto the body without organs which um to me speaks to the like the attempt to separate you from the, uh, the body without organs
1: process fails because it constitutes the paranoiac machine from repulsion that's what sort of psychoanalysis does it's, it closes you off from that paranoia in that paranoiac state
0: yeah or if it does become i'll give it this too if it does become miraculating it tries to miraculate insofar as it can be um edipolizing right because it,
1: it can go both ways i i think you're right there um could we, could you could, we, could you uh, speak a little bit more about that actually
0: yeah, um, so there is the level of repulsion and the paranoiac, right? Um, and with that, we can even say that the, the celibate machine is an ancient paranoiac machine. Uh, it points us to something that psychoanalysis would try to say is, well, if they were going to recognize desiring machines in these syntheses, they would try to say, oh, yes, but it's the, the paranoiac machine of uh, something edible. In the same way, I, I think um, Vruin is right that there is a paranoiac response to... Um, there is a way that I think the body without organs could be used to create a paranoiac response to oedipalization, which is kind of getting into like... Even though I think uh, psychoanalysis tries to keep you away from the body without organs, we know that the body without organs still is is there and working, right? And so I think in the same way... The other side of the trick, which would be kind of the double bind of it, comes with the the body without organs and and these syntheses getting affirmed to kind of miraculate an adipolization, which sounds extremely difficult, and I'm not sure this can be performed to a, um, performed uh, as well as Mel Gibson performs Hamlet, uh, (laughs) but I think it can be performed to a certain degree. We'll I am um, yeah. yeah.
1: I don't know how much I agree with you there because the miraculating machine is by its very nature is all about having multiple chains right and so what registers on the body our organs are these signs that create chains and uh, with the miraculating machine then what the miraculating machine does in a really short shortened and dirty way is that it it registers all the diverse possibilities. That's by way by its very nature. It's 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 similar to Deleuze's concept of the virtual, right? Where all the potentials are stored on that miraculated plane. And so, I, I struggle to see how it can be etopized in a miraculated way because if it's if it's if it's by its nature, it's very exclusive. I mean, it's 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 very inclusive rather than exclusive. I don't know how you could have an inclusive uh, Oedipus. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I've got to be careful here because w- what you're saying is correct, but I think with the double bind, there's a way of trying to cut those streams off, um, or even with the, where they write about the despised signifier, from which uh, that point of view of the signifier allows for a, a recognition of lack and other things, because the signifier is missing them.
1: Isn't that the creation of the paranoiac machine? What you just described there, isn't that a paranoiac machine, not a miraculating machine?
0: Um, I think the trick is that you can have the paranoiac machine and you can also have the, um, the miraculation, miraculating machine. Uh, if I remember correctly, in section one, they say that there's like they can exist simultaneously as well.
1: Right, but I... I i still i mean i think what they mean by the fact that it's simultaneous is that it's 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 a, a multilinear process so it's it, 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 i don't know maybe one part is one part is parano- one part of what's going on in, in the psyche one, one part of what's going on in the unconscious is paranoia like the other part is miraculating. I, I don't know how much because you know it's it's, it's multiple desiring machines uh but uh I struggle to see this idea of miraculation and Oedipus being two, because I think it's pretty explicit by miraculation. It's about registering all the diverse possibilities where Oedipus is all about, okay, so it's this one triangle.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, I think you're right. Um, and I've got to, like I said, I've got to be careful here because they're very explicit that the unconscious doesn't care about Oedipus right, in the same way that the death of God is uh, meaningless to the, the unconscious. Um, what I do think, or at least what I suspect, and perhaps I need to do more more work to demonstrate this, is we know that Oedipus can occur, right? But all these other things can occur, like ruin is saying. But I think there's also a way that psychoanalysis, um, and perhaps in some ways it does this uh, somewhat unintentionally, uh, since I believe it doesn't quite understand what Deleuze and Guadri are laying out, but I think there's also an element whereby the hope is to get the unconscious to work in this Oedipalized state. Now, I agree with Ruin that I, I don't think that that's fully possible because the unconscious doesn't care about Oedipus. But I think at the level of like the priest, the interpretive and all that, I think there is a way that it can still be imposed, and an attempt to miraculate can be made.
3: I just like to mention that uh, it is unclear so far whether or not uh, this is a uh, supposed to be a universal scheme or a culturally.
0: Yeah, I think you make a good point there because this could. Psychoanalysis in the U.S. might now probably doesn't look like psychoanalysis in France in the nineteen seventies. Or to to make a a more obvious parallel, right? If you tried to use Oedipus in like um, some place like Tahiti, I don't think they'd have any idea what you're talking about. In fact, isn't
3: that? Yeah, so, so, happen, so, so the, sorry. So, so that's a, yeah. That's exactly my point is that um, you know, Oedipus uh, is something that was seized upon by Freud. Um, Gao, in Oedipus the Philosopher uh, contrasts the Oedipus myth with um, the the uh, the hero's monomyth, and so I think puts that in. Into context that Oedipus is an anomaly um, of the failed initiation of the hero, and so, um, but but that's the Greek hero, right? So, and the the West considers the Greeks to be the source of their culture, and so you know other societies are going to have other uh, other myths and. Uh, other cultural configurations, and uh, if there was something like psychoanalysis that developed somewhere else, uh, it would be very different. It would be seizing on other myths, and, and you know, say it was a matriarchal society, then you know, uh, it would you know, the the problem would be the, the the brother of the of the mother, not the father.
1: Yeah. As long as there is a representation, it's not just Oedipus. As long as you get a representation, something happens where desire gets trapped into these double binds or these ways of existing.
3: Right. And so, and so then the, the other thing is I, I believe, you know, that, um, you know, you have to have representation one way or another um, because, you know, if we didn't have any representations, we couldn't even talk about non-representability. And so there's a, there, the, you know, there also there's this question of um, is, is representation as we understand it in the West the same as representation in other places? I mean, the, the thing is that if you look at the initial kinds of writing. Um, they're very different from each other. You know, the hieroglyphs are very different from Mayan glyphs, very different from uh, Chinese characters. And so, you know, it's unclear uh, if this, even if the structure of representation is the same universally, uh, if there wasn't an influence from the West.
4: So, I, I just want to add something to the cultural specificity of uh, Oedipus. Because I think, um, specifically, what you said about different myths is something that psychoanalysis actually acknowledges and uses. So, I'm pretty much a beginner with psychoanalysis, but uh, this, so um, I'm using here what I read in introductions. Um, but, for example, in Japanese um, psychoanalysis, there's um, the ayase, ajase, I, can, I don't know how it's pronounced, uh, complex, which has a different configuration of the family. The father doesn't actually appear, the mother has two roles, and uh, so on, so but I think uh, Deleuze and Gattori already acknowledge this. I think somewhere in the first chapter they talk about how para oedipal stories exist and psychoanalysis uses it, and I think this goes back to the uh, to um, to when they talk about the structural Oedipus because uh, it's. They are not really concerned with uh, with the myth um, Oedipus, but they um, talk about how psychoanalysis uses myth. So the the content of the myth uh, psychoanalysis uses is irrelevant for the argument.
0: Yeah, for my part, I see it as like it doesn't. I think you're right. It doesn't have to be Oedipus, and I think that's what's important when they say de Oedipalizing. Like, if you were to take away Oedipus and then replace it with something else, like, say, the Electra myth, then you got the same problem, right? You, you, you missed the point. And so I think, like, um, without going into, like, because I think you guys are right, this does look different in other societies, in other time periods, but I think the trick with schizoanalysis is to is to take out, that, uh, is to extricate the privileged point, which in our society uh, would appear to be Oedipus.
3: Another thing I'd like to mention, just to kind of, because it's easy to kind of uh, get caught up in the words. So, you know, I've I've introduced before this um, analogy uh, that I came up with. uh, if it's right but clarified things for me of the of the door the lock the entryway you know that that you know since we're in a summary chapter it's worth looking at analogies to see whether or not they work or not. And, uh, so you know uh, in this analogy of the door and the lock entryway, um, it's uh, you know the key goes into the lock, <clears throat> and that's a connection. And then the 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 door is fastened to the door jamb through a bolt that can be inserted or or taken out. And and when it is, then that that door can be moved, and that's like a disjunction. <clears throat> and then. Uh, the door itself is neither inside nor outside. It's it's it is the 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 uh, conjunctive uh, separator between the inside and the outside. And when that door moves, you can it, then the person can go inside and outside. And so I think I think that that what's good about this analogy is that it kind of brings. Um, some clarity to this whole thing about uh, uh, simultaneity and succession i mean i really like the idea that connection is better than simultaneity i think that that's that's a good insight that it's making connections but but anyway just to go through this analogy so you could think about it is that um, the uh, you know the 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 putting the key into the lock is is the is the connective synthesis, and 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 uh, the bolt going in and out to allow the door to move is the this disjunctive, and then the uh, the the conjunctive synthesis is the the fact that you can then move from one room to the other. That the conjunction is the door that's between the inside and outside that lets you uh, go in and out. If the door's not in place, but otherwise it, break, it it's a barrier and doesn't allow you to go if it's locked. And, and I think that as far as universality is concerned, you know there's doors everywhere in the world. There's some societies that don't have them, but you know I mean the Chinese have doors with lock. and they develop that separately from the West. And so you know th- that, that's, a, that's kind of a case for universality when a when a society gets to a certain level of uh, 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 technology, then people use doors and locks and stuff like that. and then we see them everywhere in our society. It's the way that private property is uh, protected but 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 also, you know it it connects to this idea of is it simultaneous or is it uh, successive you it, you can see it's a higher synthesis all all three of those things together work together to make something happen that would not be able to happen if you didn't have all three parts together so anyway so anyway let me know what you think of that
4: so i think um specifically talking about universality Um, we need to slow down a bit because um, the third chapter starts with universal history and what that means in context of anti-Oedipus. And this is, well, that's uh, that's a critique of Marxist history, but I think we need to read that chapter before we can really talk about the universal, uh, or what universality means in context of this book.
3: Yeah, I grant that. I, I think I think that's a good.
4: Point. Because what you just said, I could not really find what uh, this sounded too much like just structuralist. Um, universality, right? So that there are structures that underlie every culture, and we can find them again. But this doesn't sound right with what Deleuze and Guattari tried to do.
3: Okay, we'll wait and see. But what do you think of the analogy of the uh, of the doors and the locks? Yeah, I mean, because what what I want to emphasize here is that it's it's it, those things working together make something happen right and so that the, there's a practical aspect to it and that's pragmatism coming
1: out yeah i mean the whole point is that it has to do something it always has to be productive it always has to be working right i i think even that image that, uh, if you guys some of you guys have the penguin if you, if you, if you guys have the penguin edition that uh image, that's your picture but it's called um it's called man as the palace of industry by dr Kahn. it was made in the 1930s but i think it's it's actually it's a beautiful illustration of what they're talking about because it's always productive it's like a factory it's working it's uh it's producing something it's always doing something it's never in fixity it's never in stasis it's always becoming or doing something you know, water Watery, has that like, quote about if uh, if if my concepts uh, didn't do something, you should just take them and throw them away.
3: So, so the, this man is the palace of it. I don't have that. C- can you can can you uh, link a picture to that? Uh, yeah, of course. I'll just do that now.
2: I think it's the idea is that this body um, is sort of what's the word? Uh, Like machines are sort of drawn in, in this body. It's like, it's got a lung machine. It's got a nose machine and stuff like
3: that. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, my point is, you know, maybe this analogy is no good, but, uh, but I think we should look for analogies like that, where we can think we see the different syntheses work together and see if we can, uh, find actual examples in the world uh, to ground our
1: theorizing. The, the hardest part about it is the fact that it is non-representational, right? That it's constantly becoming. So there's, uh, there's. I was trying to. I was for the real becoming uh, channel. I was trying to. I was trying to make a sort of uh, way we can think about it. I mean. I think the easiest way to think about non-representationality is like complexity theory, right? Where, um, where, where complexity theory also has to argue for how the way different things form together, right? And there are different sort of organizations that can take place. And those organizations always have to have, uh, always have to have, uh, potentials ingrained in, in, in the calculation of when you're finding those, uh, those those uh, i mean those uh those things because that's like you know i uh, it's 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 completely non-representational in in that sort of mathematics but it, and i think it, it it's really difficult to sort of you know create a diagram almost but um you know i think one easy metaphor for it for you know what what they mean by understanding non-representation is uh, evolution right you uh if you if you if you take the evolution clock back and when you just move it back in a timeline, right? It's like you roll a film reel, you roll it backwards. When you roll the clock backwards, uh, evolution occurs differently, right? Uh, zebras could look very different than when they look now if you just change the time backwards and forwards. And so what happens is because it's it's about those things in between, those uh, diverse uh, possibilities that occur in between things have to be registered if you're going to talk about something completely non-representationally. So that's what the, the mathematics does so well. But I, I think it's very hard to understand that in terms of uh, actual sort of metaphor
3: or analogy. So I, I, I agree with you completely about that. Uh, and that's Delandis. you know, and that's the connection he makes and that's why his work is so good. Opinion. I've never but, read the so <laughs> yeah, you'd really like it because it, it it completely supports what you just said. But um, but but here here's my my difficulty. There's different kinds of non-representable, and so and so when we say non-representable, um, you know, you know, there's there's different things there. Like for instance, one of the things that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are talking about are with non-representability is affect. You know, they're they're saying that it's the feeling uh, and the sensation, uh, you know, that 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 are that are you know they they're embedded in the desiring being. I mean, that's an example. That's an example of non-representability, and there's a whole literature. About affect being, non-representable. but then there's there's other kinds of non-representability like higher dimensionality, and uh, in math even in math there's other kinds of non-representability uh, because there's for instance certain matroids that cannot be uh, represented in a given space. They just can't be brought into the space, so to, to represent it. So. You know, I think that's uh, true of uh, like Kleinian bottles. Can't remember how many there are, but there's like, say, seven Kleinian bottles in the fourth dimension, and you you can only bring six of them. Or something. So, so I'm just saying there's different kinds of non. Oh, another kind of non-representability is this triangulation thing that that there are surfaces that cannot be triangulated. They're called exotic surface topology. So I'm just saying there's lots of different kinds of non-representability. It's kind of like once you get outside of this straitjacket of representability, then um, then you're kind of opened up to this whole world of other kinds of non represent And, you know, we need to explore that world and figure out the different kinds of non-representability that are there.
1: And that's why I love uh, difference in repetition so much. Cause that's what he basically just outlines his whole mission indifference, difference and repetition. But I, I would, I'd like to go back to the main text. Cause I think we're going a little bit too, too much into, into non-representationality. I think what you're talking about affect, it, what was that to do with uh, Brian Masumi at, by any chance?
3: Uh, no.
1: Oh, okay. then I'm wrong. Um,
3: because because they, they mention affect in the book, in the book we've been reading. I, I, I don't know
4: if it's last chapter or the chapter before? I mean, section before. Prime uh, uh, Prime is uh, the one that takes this concept of effect and runs with it really far.
1: Oh, okay, okay, I didn't know. Um, anyways, I think we can go back to see the next follow up question, so we don't miss anything.
0: I just wanted to give a quick point before we, um, we let Begum uh, tell us about her question. Uh, I just want to say if you, because we're talking about analogies and how to understand the test. I think to me, the proof of the test in one way is going to be like, uh, if you guys know the term like uh, self reflexivity. So like Italo Calvino, for instance, he wrote, uh, if on a winter's night a traveler and the test starts out something like this. You are about to read If on a Winter's Night a Traveler by Italo Calvino. You should put up your feet, make a nice cup of tea, and make sure nobody disturbs you while you're reading If on a Winter's Night by uh, Italo Calvino. It, it, it kind of starts out that way, and that's that's called self-reflexivity, this. Uh, Another way of thinking about it is like, the text is in some way aware that it's a test. And so like, uh, I see this in Deleuze and Guadari, it's happening all around us, machines worrying. Everything stops from a certain perspective. Like what they're talking about um, is reflexive with our act of reading the book. And so, if you're trying to um, see these syntheses in real life, I really think you can just look at the act of reading the book and the way you, your eye machines are connected to your book machines. And, um, you know, you could even posit a Deleuze and Glottery effect that, uh, you know, like you kind of. Uh, subjectivity you're taking on or like a, you know, uh, like Varun is calling me a nerd for reading fiction, a nerd subjectivity, a nerd effect. So I I do think you can see these things um, in in the act of reading it, in the act of reading the very book. And so uh, if if there's a, yeah, I was struggling with the disjunctive synthesis myself, but We've got about 40 minutes left, so we can, um, I do want to make sure we get to Begum's question.
1: I mean, just really quick, if you want the disjunctive synthesis, right, the way it works is that desiring machines uh, get recorded, right? In order for, because you know, if, if, if I think the good example is this schizophrenic table, uh, if we didn't have a disjunctive synthesis, all that would be happened, we'd be locked into this regimented scheme of, of these uh, regimented uh, regimes of production, right? And the schizophrenic table, it, it's constantly becoming, It's never it never reaches the identity of a table. It's just always being, it, they, they, descri- they describe it really well. I think the imagery they use there is really brilliant. It's grotesque, right? It's cumbersome. It has nothing to do with a table. It's just constantly this organic thing that's constantly becoming, and it's just, it's just it's just hideous right so what what the disjunctive synthesis allows is it allows the identity of a table to come into fruition so what it does is it dis, it, it what it does is it it removes connections and uh, by pr- producing it was so what they call it is the production of fancy production and then what happens is there's a sign connection that's recorded now, the recording of these sign connections, it's the recording of when you, when you, this is what we were talking about the miraculating machine, right? There are previous connections of desiring machines being recorded on, on the surface of the body without organs. And that constitutes the, the miraculating part. But there's also a, a paranoiac part on the body without organs where the disjunctive synthesis can lead to a complete breakdown. And the breakdown causes uh, essentially, you know, the organism to just shut up, right? It just it closes down. It, it, the machine, the stopped rumbling and uh, rather than being inclusive, like the, like the schizophrenic is, you become exclusive as a paranoiac and coming back to the idea of the sign connections. It's only when the disjunction happens that we can have a, pro- there's a distinction between product with between producing and producing identity. It's through the disjunction of the disjunctive synthesis that we get the product identity of the table. Um, So, coming back to Begum's question, I just want to read it out loud again. Uh, I'm curious about the strengths of schizoanalysis, apart from that negation of psychoanalysis. Abolishing what does it mean, advancing how does it work, seems similar to technology, algorithms, etc. And if there's any correlation, I'd like to discuss how it's important to their work. So... uh, Right off the bat, I think you'd really like Gilbert Simondon. I know it's not Deleuze, but because he has this whole book called, uh, I forgot what it's actually called, but it's, we were just reading, we were reading like excerpts of it with, in the in the Simondon reading group. And it was all about looking at our relationship with technical machines, right? Technology. And how um, what happens is it's how these uh, cybernetic technical machines uh, operate in conjunction with the, with the, you know, the, the, the human organism. And, uh, for example, he goes into a lot of heavy cybernetics and he compares it with the Cartesian ego, but like the, the whole project of that book is to account for, you know, in the past we had religion, how does technology change your understanding of religion? In the past we had myths, how does technology change your understanding of myths? And what's the modern idea of technology lying in there? but I, I think what what I really like about that chapter when they ask about what does it mean rather instead of asking what does it mean the hermeneutics game of psychoanalysis they ask what does it do so um, I think I think that's like you know I think I mentioned this earlier but if anyone's if, if, if any like if a beginner asks me like what's like the best place to start with the losing lottery i would just give them that chapter because i think i mean that section that short little quote because i think that explains non-representationality so well because you know when you ask what does it mean you create a sort of ideal things are always becoming they're constantly in flux so you can't ask a question like that you have to ask how does it work you have to you know you have to count for those diverse possibilities and that's what they mean by, by schizoanalysis accounting for that, as in schizoanalysis, accounting for the fact that desire is not so monolithic as Oedipus would have you. But uh, coming back to your question, I I think also what might be interesting to explore is that there's an anti-anthropocentrism with Deleuze and Guattari, right? So I wonder what connections, like, you know, like the body and the machine could have.
5: Um, I think, what's more Or the bird
0: in flight. go ahead, Begum.
5: Okay, is my voice okay?
0: Um, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Could you, um, maybe move it closer?
5: Um, okay, so, can, is it better now?
0: Uh, can you guys hear Begum? Uh, almost, you're very faint.
5: Okay, so I'm on my headphones, so I don't, I'm not really sure where the mic is. So, okay. So, so what my concern was about regarding this chapter was like, so they're abolishing the hierarchy because meaning creates hierarchy between stuff. And I think this is um, <laughs> a transcendent. They're trying to abolish the transcendent way of using synthesis. And... Uh, it creates gaps, in my opinion. And what I wonder is that uh, if if the meaning doesn't uh, fill those gaps, what will? And what what I believe, uh, what I thought about that was that maybe the technology can play a role in here, in order to fill the gaps, because like we're connected to them, and I'm connected to the technology in order to reach this uh, information or this flow. And when I'm cut out from it, that, it it makes some bigger impact than me in any other myths. So yeah, there's a, there's a gap that with the abolishment of meaning, there's a gap that is opening up. And I wonder if the, what, have, uh, what will fill that gap. And this is why I asked the question, the, um, what will schizoanalysis do uh, instead of like uh, criticizing psychoanalysis? So that was my concern.
1: Well, one thing with that last part was that schizoanalysis is always productive, right? I mean, it's meant, to, it's, meant to, it's meant to affirm the idea of creating potentials and stuff. And creating, it's about, you know, we have all these possibilities stored up inside of us. It's about, you know, affirming all those possibilities to the greatest amount of degree that is possible in a society. And so that, that book that I just linked to by Gilbert Simondon on the mode of existence of technical objects. It's a, it's it's really dense work, but I think he's going to answer the question that you have actually. He's, he plays around with a lot of cybernetics and he's trying to understand, you know, where does, uh, uh, how, how does, how does the technology account for all these things that we have and how does the human relationship or the human ontology associate with technology? He plays a lot of, like with the section that we were le- reading last time, maybe check out that recording too, because we, we, we talk about his critique of the Cartesian ego and how technology associates itself with that.
0: For reference to um, the translator who worked on that, Taylor Adkins, he is on the server, so um, it is possible to get some a discussion uh, going about uh, Begum's question there.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I mean the book I le- linked, I don't think Adkins translated that, but I'm I'm sure I think even on his podcast he was discussing this with Joseph Wiseman about uh about how do, how did they connect, but yeah, I'll I'll try and send him a message about this and see what he says actually because I don't think he's been on Discord for a while so I'll send him on Twitter.
0: My understanding is he's everywhere. So <laughs> Wherever you look, Taylor Atkins is there. All right, so we've made it through our first three questions. Um, Does anyone have any additional questions? If not, um, I did have a section I thought was kind of interesting to focus on. But uh, first, I'll open up to you guys.
1: I think Tiern might be typing something. So I have another question on the disjunctive synthesis, if someone cares to respond later on. The restricted Oedipal use of the disjunctive synthesis is prescribed as having two poles, the symbolic differentiations and the undifferentiated imaginary. What exactly did these poles refer to? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm not super well versed in Lacan either. So I'm going to really... I, I, I feel like if I answered this I would really butcher it. But it, I mean, so cuz the desiring machines, they say that the entire process, right, all the three syntheses put together, what they produce is is this, is, is the lacanian real. And the and the thing about the lacanian real is where, where Lacan said that the real was uh, um was, was 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 the impossible they reply by saying the real is where everything is possible, but I, I only know Lacan through reading, you know, some Bruce Fink and and reading some secondary texts, and I've never gone so far. But I, so I, I don't think I can actually help you on how we can understand symbolic differentiations and undifferentiated imagery. I, I know Kent has been reading a lot more Lacan re- lately, so I, I would, I'm always, just, I'm going to burden him a bit here with this comment.
3: Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question.
0: So what might help us is, um, Begum did give us a, a page reference, and so the, what she's referring to is um, where Deleuze and Guattari write, in the second place, an inclusive or non-restrictive use of disjunctive synthesis is in opposition to their edible, exclusive restrictive use. This restrictive use, in turn, has two poles, imaginary, symbolic, different, Oh, excuse me, Imaginary and symbolic, since their only choice it permits is between the exclusive symbolic differentiations and the undifferentiated imaginary, quaratively determined by Oedipus. This oh, you okay. use... Oh I suddenly like was quick for you.
1: I think I think I, I think I actually wanna just reread the entire part and I'll see. I think I got something but reread the entire part.
0: <laughs> Alright, well Varun is furiously scribbling his copious notes on how to answer this. This use demonstrates this time how this proceeds. It demonstrates Oedipus' method, a paralogism of the double bind, the double impasse. Or, in line with the suggestion made by Henry Gobbard, would it be better to translate this as double hold, like a fullness and hold in wrestling, so as to better describe the treatment forced on the unconscious when it is bound at both ends leaving it no other choice than to respond to Oedipus, to cry Oedipus, in sickness as in health, in its crises as in their outcome, in its revolution as in its problem. In any case, the double bind is not the schizophrenic process. On the contrary, the double bind is Oedipus insofar as it arrests the motion of the process or forces it to spin around the void. While Varuna is talking, I'm going to get some water, so you guys go ahead.
1: I mean, so one, one thing before I start is that I, I really want to emphasize this: is the Lacanian symbolic order, right? They don't they don't deny it, and so wh- one thing we need to be careful about when we're asking all these questions about this, the stru- the function of structure uh, we we can't uh, we can't say. We can't just say that they denied the symbolic order because it works similar to the uh, fashion that Oedipus exists. You can't just deny Oedipus, right? But the thing is, what 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 i what what I'm what I think they mean by you know that the thing about Lacanian psychoanalysis it's it's a bariumum knot. I think this image that Musky posted is a good example. So the bariumum knot is essentially working in the way where they're all tied up together. So you see the way the the, the spheres connect to each other's sphere and they're all linked so you can't remove one of the other and that's a very monolithic thing i think in lacanian psychoanalysis so the thing is i think what they're saying by by saying that okay the synthesis just produced the real is that it's not as you know where 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 lacan is creating all these distinctions between between things where he's asking, where he's going to be able to say, where he's demarcating almost special regions. Okay. So the fantasy happens here. The, the way signifiers happen, there, signifiers, and this happens there. They're going to say it's not, it's not like that. And it's much more, uh, (laughs) dare I say it rhizomatic, but, uh, it's, it's, it's much more, it's much more chaotic and it's all happening to produce the real. So, um, I think without without knowing Lacan too well, I'm making a bit of an assumption here, so I, I wouldn't want anyone to take this 100%, but uh, what they're talking about is this idea of categorizing things that can't work in the same way.
0: You know, I'll say too, like what, what kind of sticks out to me is, uh, since the only choice it permits is between the exclusive symbolic differentiations, it's so like the way you can uh, distinguish between symbols, and the undifferentiated imaginary, both of which are uh, determined by Oedipus. So at one level, it looks like, um, at one level, how this looks is like, uh, there's a way that Oedipus cuts off the, um, the disjunctive synthesis and restricts it to um, looking at exclusive symbolic differentiations with, which I think takes us out of the real in some sense and uh, the undifferentiated imaginary which sounds like it takes us out of takes us away from the body without organs because if i remember correctly the body without organs is a giant undifferentiated mass
1: yeah but i mean uh, um, there are a lot of connections between the body without organs and you know that whole famous quote about what Lacan saying that the unconscious is structured like a language or that uh, the unconscious is the discourse of the other i mean because you know, it's 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 it. There's a signifying chain on the body with that organ that might get, you know, intercepted by a despotic signifier. But um, the way the sig- where Lacan construed the signifier as being so monolithic that you have you have language, right? They constitute it as it can be anything. Like I think they give a pretty explicit example about, oh, there's the mother's hair that's recorded on. There's the father's foot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I I think what I mean is like the double hold is a way of getting the recording process to work in an Oedipal sense
1: yeah and i mean i think i again made a big mistake by referencing the father right Cause he, or the mother because cause part objects doesn't have any global persons behind them they make that pretty clear in in, in the fifth uh, the fifth section of chapter one you can't un- where melanie klein understands partial objects only I mean, in relation to a global entity you can't do that in terms of desire machines
0: yeah and that's going to take us into the either or of the imaginary and symbolic right
1: But again, I'm not super confident to answer some of these questions.
0: Yeah, my Lacan is is very, my Lacan is is just non existent. (laughs) But what I can kind of garner out of this to give maybe an attempt at an answer is that it kind of looks like it's a way that uh, Oedipus sort of hijacks, well, I shouldn't say hijack. Oedipus sort of takes over this junctive synthesis to limit it to the symbolic and imaginary, which I think is an attempt to try and get the, um, to instead of have the inscription moving toward the body without organs, I think it's an attempt to try and get the um, the inscription onto the undifferentiated imaginary.
1: I mean, can you clarify exactly how you're meaning imaginary, though?
0: I guess I gotta be clear. Uh, I mean to say that it looks like the way this double bind works is it tries to do it is it um, is it cuts off the uh, the either-or chain and restricts it to these two poles and so like it it sort of seems to me like instead of moving in the body without organs or moving into um, how to say a symbolic differentiation so like Moving toward uh, moving toward inclusive uh, sort of nomadic um, movement, right? Instead of some exclusive symbolic differentiations, it looks like it kind of constricts us into this realm of um, sort of like uh, predisposed differentiations. And a, instead of a body without organs as an undifferentiated mass, uh, instead you have the imaginary. That would be my attempt at starting to interpret this. I could very well be wrong.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, I know the fact that it's like a critique of Lacan and stuff, but, you know, the way that their schema is so different than someone like Lacan or Freud, it's completely radically different. And I think that's what makes this book a little bit easier for me because if they were, if they were, you know, they just said, oh, this it's similar to Lacan, I would be struggling. But it's so radically different that <laughs> some parts you actually, you know, it, it makes it easier not having that background. So there's no sort of retroactive interference.
0: Yeah, I think there's actually a, a point where in an interview, Deleuze says something to the effect of, um, the people who have an easier time with this book are the people who haven't read all the things I'm alluding to something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also like you said, this book is written for 15 year olds, right? Cause it's, it's it, they have not been affected so much by some of society's sort of edipolizing effects yet.
3: Well, you know, that, that's kind of like Kun <clears throat> said about paradigm changes that, uh, you know, the people with the old paradigm, they kind of have to die off for the new paradigm to take hold.
0: That sounds sort of Malthusian.
3: <laughs> well, it also sounds very much like Plato. You know, he wanted to get rid of all of the, the, the adults in his perfect city.
0: Yep, anybody that wouldn't conform, right? Get rid of the poets, get rid of the adults.
3: But there is there is some truth to this because uh, I to give you an example. <clears throat> uh, I was trying to learn uh, about relativity theory and kept reading books where they transitioned from Newton to Einstein. And Then I then and couldn't understand it. And then I then I uh, I found this book by Wheeler where he said in the beginning of the book he said, "Well, I've tried to teach it the regular way. All these." for a long time and it doesn't work. And so, so what I do now is I teach the kids um, uh, relativity theory first, and then uh, explain to them the Newtonian way of looking at things, which is a restricted case within the general case of relativity theory. And he says, they understand it that way. And I read it, I read his book and I understood it. So there is something to be said for uh, attacking the new paradigm first and understanding it and then going back to try to understand these restricted cases.
0: Yeah, and in some ways that kind of made sense with post-structuralism, right? Because it is—I mean, we're trying, we're kind of using Kuhnian terms here, right? But it is a paradigm—it uh, is the movement out of structuralism. Yes. So I guess we have the advantage of being able to learn about post-structuralism and then structuralism as opposed to going through structuralism into post-structuralism.
3: Well, you know, that guy Levy Bryant, you know, in his uh, commentary on difference and repetition uh, called, I think, Givenness and Difference, um, he says that, you know, they're they're doing a a new new, uh, Copernican revolution. You know, which is like a paradigm. Uh, going, from you, a going from the transcendental ego to the uh, the unconscious as being the the organizer of experience. And so, I mean, so a lot so that's of the, a, that's 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 a pretty deep uh, paradigm. Change.
1: A lot of Deleuze's work was similar to what, uh, you know, what Kant was doing when he was trying to, when Kant was trying to build an ontology for the Newtonian worldview, right? The Newtonian sciences. That's what all like the three critiques are all about, about, about encompassing how we can encompass science into metaphysics. I think Deleuze was doing the same thing, but for like contemporary math- mathematics, right? When difference in repetition was being written, he was looking at morphogenesis and like, uh, Structural Stability, that's a book by Renee Tom, if I'm not mistaken. And he's also looking at, you know, all, all the cybernetic stuff, and non-linear dynamics, and that's, and so he was building an ontology for those to account for that in the same way Kant would do.
3: Exactly. And, and if you read Deleuze, that's what he said. Not Deleuze, sorry, uh, DeLanda.
0: Yeah, I'll say too, Ken, I like your point about the movement away from the transcendental ego, because this also, um, like this also, right? So, like they're working with the the, the psychoanalytic tradition in that, but the movement outside of the transcendental ego. Uh, that Foucault talks about how that had reigned supreme in France for for decades, right? Um, with Husserl, with even with Sartre, um, trying to figure out a way to like uh, get outside of the transcendental ego in that. Although existentialism takes a different route, but it is interesting to think, right? Like instead of privileging a transcendental ego, um, Deleuze and Guattari's move is to is to try and um, understand the unconscious.
3: So in the in uh, in Foucault's The Order of Things, the last the last episteme, he kind of talks about it as fall of man as concept, and uh, and basically he says that that it's you know, it's going to be an exploration of the uh, the relationship between structuralism and the unconscious, and um, you know, and then and then post structuralism kind of uh, made a breakthrough to get you know kind of uh, realizing that that structuralism had its limitation, and then so so now we have. Uh, you know, Deleuze and Zizek, and Badiou, working in that area, you know, what Foucault predicted, you know, is actually happening. But there's two very different paradigms one, one, uh, one based in Lacan's work, Deleuze is based in Merleau Ponty.
0: Yeah, it's definitely coming to pass. And it's interesting, too, because it does. I mean, it does have um, significant effects about how we're thinking about things.
3: And then something very cool, you know, uh, which I, I, I think, you know, not enough uh, uh, airtimes given to is that, is that with Deleuze's work, there is this uh, thread of genetic phenomenology that goes from Husserl through Merleau-Ponte uh, to Deleuze that is worth exploring because these things that Deleuze is saying don't come out of just, you know, they don't come out of nowhere. They come out of uh, Husserl's genetic phenomenology as interpreted, interpreted by uh, Merleau-Ponte and then uh, read back into Heidegger's critique of Kant, Difference in Repetition, and now moving to isolating these three syntheses that are attributed to the unconscious. I mean,
1: genetic, you know, uh, because Husserl started exploring genetic uh, phenomenology very later on, right? Because he started with uh, static phenomenology, at least that's what they called it, right? And then when... uh, uh, you know, when, when pe- people, from the, when the French started reading his gen- genetic pheno- phenomenology, I, I hear that he they actually took a very different approach, right? They almost, some people say they almost misread it and they created something interesting from that. But I mean, really, it's that point where uh, some people even consider genetic phenomenology I've heard to be the standpoint of Deleuze's like transcendental empiricism and they're almost uh, interlinked to each other. But... Uh, <sighs> I, it's uh, it, it's really hard to tell at the current moment because you know I'm, I'm not a big fan of actually of all these names like transcendental empiricism, uh, genetic phenomenology because I, th- I think at the end of the day they really mean nothing.
3: <laughs> well, I mean the thing is that it, it, it's good. I mean for me it was kind of a revelation to understand that there was a tradition here beyond behind what Deleuze was doing that he was explicitly, uh using. And so, in that sense, it it, it helps to understand, uh, you know, kind of the background to what he's doing. And I do believe that transcendental empiricism is his extension of genetic phenomenology. And it, it, of course, the the other the other thing here is uh, understanding the relationship between hyperbeing and wild being. You know, Derrida and Lacan are are mostly talking about this hyper-being Derrida calls difference. Deleuze is talking about a different kind of being, which is wild being, Castori- Castoriadis also developed. So it helps to see these different thinkers who are, who are doing similar things, but approaching it in different ways and with different terminology.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a dialogue between um, philosophers, right? They don't, like you're saying, they, they don't exist in a void. Or at least, um, I don't think most of them do. Maybe Sartre existed in a void, maybe. <laughs> ah, thank you for the pity laugh. I appreciate it. Alrighty, so with that, we have about fifteen minutes left. Um you guys want to keep moving and do some, cause there's a section I think is worth um, diving further into. Do you guys want to move into that or um, maybe do something else? Do you have any other questions or anything, um, uh, you, you, any pa- passages you want to go over? I don't want to uh, afflict you with mine. Okay. Well, I thought one thing that would be interesting to talk about today, given that we are talking about the different uses and misuses of the three syntheses is the um and we've already started to talk about with disjunctive synthesis but the the three errors concerning desire called lack law and signifier um i, I thought this was a pretty important uh, series of passages the way they're laying out the um kind of what varun is called the, the pr- paralogisms of the three syntheses. And so I guess I'll give a um, couple of passages we can kind of talk about. Uh, it is futile to interpret these notions in terms of a combinative apparatus that meets of lack an empty position and no longer a deprivation. That turns the law into a rule of the game and no longer a commandment. And the signifier into a distributor, and no longer a meaning, for these notions cannot be prevented from dragging their theological cortage behind: insufficiency of being, guilt, signification. But what do you guys make of that? And for those of you following along, uh, that is from page one hundred eleven.
2: Very. Uh, I don't. I don't want to keep talking about Nietzsche too much because I've been known to do that. But it does remind me of the genealogy of morals again. Oh, yes, I've been the one at the party being like, Nietzsche said, blah, 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 just drunkenly
1: screaming. Mad <laughs> man, God, you're I forgot So So I I, th- I found this actually pretty clear, right, that the three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error, an idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious and it is futile to know, to is futile to interpret these notions in terms of a combative apparatus that makes a lack of an empty position and a longer de- deprivation that turns the law into the rule of the game and no longer a commandment and the signifier into a distributor and no longer a meaning so um, i i i think uh, uh, i think what uh, what uh, so so, so I think this is pretty clear then pretty saying that the paralogisms right the incorrect use of the syllogistic form is what is what causes lack law and, and signifier as, as as soon as so what by, by what the, what, I, what I mean by the incorrect usage of the of the syllogistic form is the way you know the psychoanalyst would say uh, the human organism is is it, is linked in this struggle to uh, interact with the mother in a certain manner. It's that the human is uh, linked in this struggle with their own lack. It's this, these almost questions of ontological essence that uh, are pre-given that are almost paralogisms for them. And, uh, you know, the way that the, 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 the argument that they give is the reason why analysis can make an argument like that is because of actually the material conditions of uh, the time, right? The prohibition of incest. But what they're saying is, as soon as when psychoanalysis tries to, you know, create these uh, strange understandings of how desire works, they've created a representational paralogism, And from that, they've created Lac, Law, and the signifier. Signifier, I think that's referring to very directly to Lacan and his idea of the, of the signifier as being so, solely limited to language or something like that.
0: Sure. Uh- But what what I'm getting at is like, why is it important to understand lack as deprivation uh, rather than an empty position? How does that affect how we're understanding these syntheses? Because it does change how we're understanding lack, right? I mean, um, this is one of the the major disagreements um, about desire for Foucault and Deleuze, for instance, is that uh, Foucault says desire implies a lack, and Deleuze and Guattari are here saying no, it, it actually implies a deprivation.
1: I mean, um, I don't know, I don't really remember Foucault, but do you know where Foucault said that though? I'm just curious. It started...
0: Oh man, you'll have to give me a few days to scour the internet. <laughs> I, I, I remember reading it somewhere because it's, it's like a standalone thing where he says, I disagree that with the use of the word desire, because I think desire implies a lack. It's just a, it's a romantic thing.
1: Maybe you're pulling this right out of your ass.
0: Oh. Yeah, but if I uh, then your ass is deprived.
1: Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think I th- I th- they're, they're drawing off a lot of Bataille here, right? One of um, what they're going to say eventually in Chapter 3 is that... Um, Scarcity. I think one example is to think about, you know, in the the macro level of social production, you know, social production, desiring production are the same thing, but differing in regimes. But on the macro level of social production, what they're going to say is scarcity is created in the same way that lack is created by by the Lacanian psychoanalyst, right? Scarcity is something that's created. It's not organized, but rather it's completely created. And uh, uh, they're going to—they have this really affirmative or vitalist notion that humans have always— have always given, um, have always produced more than they needed because of the way desire works, right? The desiring production always produces more. It, it always produces excess, right? It's always excess flowing out. And that's a very, you know, that's a very Bataille esque concept that uh, there's always this excess. And so, what they're going to say? I, I mean, I, I think if you want to like actual evidence of this, you might just have to read the cursed chair, right? Because it's the potlatch economy. It's uh, you know all those economies that seem irrational to us, but uh, it, it it has that idea of uh, you know we are, we we are in a state of excess. And uh, if you ask me for a question of a direct proof of desire working in excess. I, that's where I would suggest you go.
0: Right, but my question is more along the lines of. Think of it this way: Supposing there is an uh, access, like Varun is saying, is the problem then that we um, we lack it in terms of having an empty position? Since Deleuze and Guatteri is saying that's a mistake, what does it mean to shift to saying it's not that we have uh, an empty position; it's that we're deprived of it?
1: I think what they're talking about is lack is created, right? It's it's through double binds and it's through where, where desiring production is denied. You know you don't have the free flowing, amorphous uh, connections as the schizophrenic does. You don't have the uh, inclusivity. You don't have the uh, never ending connections. I think you know the first uh, the first few pages is it so beautifully. It's like to be in the profundity of ev- the bliss of everyday life or something like that. It's 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 when double binds and representations come in to superimpose. Uh, to superimpose the subject, right? When when there's a poor mode of social production or there's a poor mode of analysis, which superimposes a representation onto a subject, what the representation does is, I think one example could be the double bind, but in general, what the representation does is it it, it, it removes this true objective functioning of desire. I think they say the word objective, right? It's that they the, it changes the way desire works by you know moving the flows it changes the way that the flows are coded in certain directions and in doing so you know you create a subject that that's lacking something you know in the claire Parnay interviews uh, she asks the deleuze uh, i very clearly like in simple language what you were trying to do with antipus and so the deleuze says like fascism for deleuze is lack right it's uh, you know you see your neighbor your neighbor has a nice car you want that car the fact that you want that car might just be a f- form of fascism for them because, you know, the desire doesn't come within you. You already have enough. It's Instead, it's it's something, it's your flows of desire have been coded differently to cause you to want something like that. It's that those flows that cause you to want more than your neighbor, right? You, you might feel insecure about some that you're not as good as somebody else, but rather it's the flows of desire that have been coded in poor forms of social production that's causing you to feel so alienated.
0: Yes, um, I I can definitely see it coming from, but um, what I'm getting at, and I think this is underneath uh, what you're talking about, is that there's a difference between understanding lack as an emptiness, as a nihility, as a a simple um, empty space. And there's a difference of saying that actually lack is deprivation because then you have a presence of something and you have it almost being withheld from a something which I think is kind of what you're, you're getting at. And, and that's kind of what I'm trying to zero in on is, there's, right, so we keep saying there's this paralogism, and there's this mistake with it. And one of, that, one of those mistakes is that lack becomes a, an empty position instead of a deprivation. And with deprivation, that comes with this, there's an ethical connotation with that, right? Like, all of a sudden, it sounds like you're being deprived of something. That's kind of what I'm zeroing in on with this. In the same way, if law is a rule of a game as opposed to a commandment, you know, and commandment is the proper um, understanding, that changes things quite a bit.
3: So, um the move Badu does is to focus on set theory and and they just happen to discover that set theory has in it this uh, this feature that um you know you have sets which are kind of basically parentheses and uh or brackets and uh and so there's there's two things there's the empty set and there's the null set so the 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 empty set is brackets with nothing in it, and the uh, the null set is what's between those brackets when there's nothing, in it. the 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 actual gap, and so that's given as a symbol of a zero with a line through it. So, so what Badu says is that whatever set you have. Also has the position of the empty set in it because there's that gap, and and then there's a there's a kind of corollary to this in set theory that there's no highest set because you can't have a set of all sets. So the they call the the set of all sets a uh, universe, which is something different, and they only deal with small sets, not infinite sets, uh, to avoid the paradox. But but when so when they say there's a position <clears throat> sorry when they say there's a position <clears throat> that's 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 kind of what they mean is that uh that gap that's in all sets and then and then to think about it you know there's logic and there's set theory and set sets are kind of like the minimal category of representation
2: um I wanted to do a a Bataille quote really quick because I'm working on the accursed chair and I think it'll illuminate kind of everything we've been talking about with about lack and stuff. Um, so this is on, this is, uh, in the first part laws of general economy at the accursed chair, uh, But this atmosphere of malediction presupposes anguish and anguish for its part signifies the absence or weakness of the pressure exerted by the exuberance of life. Anguish arises when the anxious individual is not himself stretched tight by the feeling of superabundance. This is precisely what evinces the isolated individual character of anguish. There can be anguish only from a personal particular point of view that is radically opposed to the general point of view based on the exuberance of living matter as a whole. Anguish is meaningless for someone who overflows with life and for life as whole which isn't overflowing by its very nature so that gets to like why they want to say something about like uh lack is a deprivation right and it sort of situates it into their sort of i think the materialism that they're getting at the sort of anti-fascism and and the sort of uh a little bit uh maybe marxie but maybe that's my bias
1: um, I don't know how Marxist it is. I think it might be because you know, they they differ a lot from Marx in this book. But uh yeah, I mean for Bataille though it's it's very atheological, right? It's uh it's uh, I think the best way to construe it is similar to Spinoza as the atheist god for Bataille, but I don't think you have that in Deleuze where Bataille understands all this excess coming from solar energy, right? I don't yeah, know if you yeah. Oh no, it's uh, awesome. It. Yeah but uh, it's, it's very, it's very different for them though. So, I mean, you know, they're, 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 also like a lot of like really weird, like you can go into some really mystical or occult readings of Deleuze where they understand desire as something else.
0: Yes. But I want to make sure I'm being clear here. Like in your example of the car is the problem, the absence of the car in your life or is the problem, the presence of the car that you have no way of getting access to that you're deprived of. And that is kind of Marxist in some
1: sense. I, I think so. even 61 has a question. Uh, my question is how, how to make sense of persistence of desire despite it being lack, right? So it's so it's their reading of lack is similar to their reading of Oedipus. They don't deny it. They say lack is very much existent, right? You know, when Lacan understood uh, lack, right, uh, the best way to understand lacan 's lack is to take take the image of like a stick figure right let's say the stick figure is the subject um, Now just cut a hole in that stick figure that's that's your lack there there's something there's a hole there's there's a hole that's missing there and and so you're constantly alienated and uh, it, 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 where, where Lacanian psychoanalysis will say it's something within you right it's it's, it's, it's you're a bewitched subject well, the losing water you're going to say it's a bewitched world. Right, and uh, uh, so I I think what uh, what you need to think about instead of asking like is it is it the car is it you I think you need to ask about flows. Where where are the flows going? Where are they being intercepted? What's being where are the flows produced and where are the flows stopped at? Yes, Um,
0: uh, to to be really clear, if if lack is deprivation, there is a possibility of connection that is being uh, interfered with, right? In some way, there's a deprivation. Whereas if lack is an empty position, there is no possibility of connection. You see how the the problematic shifts really, even though it's a subtle definition change, the problematic shifts rather intensely. And I think that's why you can have a persistence of desire is the potentiality of connection. persists when it's a deprivation as opposed to a complete nullification
3: the, the the difference here is that for lacan and Badiou, the the uh you know the lack is ontological you know it, it's it's uh, you know it's it's a part of existence that goes beyond being but it's it's something that's that's there as a real thing uh at the base of the ontology whereas for deleuze and guattari uh it's a side effect it's not a uh it's not uh, uh the basic reality the basic reality is this continuity which gets cut up into desiring machine
1: yeah i mean i think that's a nice way to put it it's a, but it's a, you need to think about the way flows get restricted and so the, when when the flows are are restricted in a certain manner that's what causes lack right
0: right a deprivation <laughs> you know, I, I, i'm just digging a little deeper to say like it's a mistake to say that the problem for the patient is the absence of a car in their life actually it's th- that they're deprived of a car Right, and this right. comes with a whole like. It comes with a of different, different things.
1: It's 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 uh, a it's it's more about the need, right? The need to have a car. Why why do you need a
3: car? It's it's it's. I think it's more exactly. about that. It's, it's so, exactly. so. So I I just like to say that an example of this production of black is like redlining. You know where where there were certain places where. They, uh, people of color could not get mortgages and they, they, they put the, the, you know, they drew out areas on a map and said no, no, that's a ghetto, you can't get a mortgage in that area that's that's a production of a lack in society that's part of uh, institutionalized racism
1: yeah, I mean I think also like uh said I just forgot it there, but it, it, you know, they, 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 in that first chapter one, also when they talk about the materialist like psychiatry, I think Craig actually said it really well, right? They, it's, it's in this chapter that the losing water. wants you to know that, you know, you're, you're complete. You, you, there's nothing that you, you need, you have yourself. And so, you know, the way your desiring machines work is that they're always constantly producing more than you actually need you always have more than you actually need. So in reality, the need, the wa- that want, that feeling of want to want a car is something that ha- comes from the creation of lack that's, that's, that occurs when there's a representation. You know, one other way to think about it is the paranoiac machine. But really, um, they're going to be a lot more clear about this in Chapter 3. And I'm, I'm assuming they're going to be a lot more clear about this in Chapter 3 because that's so, what that's all about
3: almost. So I'd like to give another example. food. So we produce way more food than we need, but the food that that doesn't get sold is destroyed. So, th- so there's a lot of people that uh, are, uh, are hungry in this country, speaking about the United States, um, because that food does not get redistributed, that is destroyed. And it's like 40% of the food that gets So, 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 so right there, this is like the potlatch. This is our example of the potlatch ceremony in that we're just, we're producing food and then destroying it and using up resources. And then people are going hungry.
2: So then the danger of fascism is in, you take this lack as the sort of empty position, you know, that's eternal and part of humanity instead of, you know, a, uh, Structure that is being like actively created in society by destroying food, right? Because then you're creating these economic crises, and then you're depriving people of what they need, and then that becomes a dangerous way of like preying on anxieties or becoming fascism or something smarter than the way I just said it.
3: Well, if the I if, just like to say that if the lack is ontological, there's no way of getting rid of it. But if the lack, if the lack is a side effect, then you can change the anti-production that produces.
2: Right, right. What I'm saying is that positioning lack as an ontological thing is a tool for fascists to slide into fascism, because then it's not that like, you know, the people in the positions of power are depriving you of something or are like making these kinds of decisions that are impacting your life in a negative way. It's not that you can it's this ontological lack. Right. It's something that you can take and then use uh, against, you know, the populace.
0: Well, kind of so like if you're deprived of something then the question becomes how, why can't I get it right? But if the thing is absent yeah. or another, and this is, I think the ontological shift is one of absence versus presence, one of um, one of impossibility versus potentiality. Uh, if the question is actually that you know there is there are cars, there is food like Kent is saying, but it's deprived from you that carries a whole different argument um, than there is no food altogether and that we lack it in absence as opposed to in presence. Yes, I guess, means- oh, just to give a final point in terms of fascism, I think that would be the way you'd want to like sort of pick it apart is, um, are they saying that there's a deprivation or are they saying that there's a complete absence
1: I I, I, I mean, I I think that it's that idea of, you know, that you want something that you don't have. I mean, they think you already have everything. So that aspect of wanting to some, the need to want something is uh, the idea of of lack. But at least they're going to go a lot deeper into this. I'm pretty sure when we reach chapter three. So I I, I don't want to take this too seriously right now i mean i'll be careful though about using the word fascism though because I, I it's uh, it's uh, it, you know losing lottery have have an interesting relationship with that word so i i, I wouldn't be too uh too careful about the i would be a bit more careful about the way i use it right now
2: okay i think both of you are right it's going to be interesting to see going forward
0: sorry i was say, i agree with you we shouldn't speak so lightly of it because he's right it is more complicated
2: yep okay and it and it and it's sort of as you were talking it struck me that like depriving people like i was mm, depriving people is well, well we'll get into it next time <laughs>